0: Okay, let's move on now to some of the implications of which the most important and most immediate was the fact that you now had a pair of extremely bright objects on your hands. You'd put these little stars very far away, they weren't that faint, and therefore in absolute terms they had to be fantastically bright. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the energy output that you deduced for your object, 3C273, and then what that meant to you, what what did you do with that huge number that you just derived?
1: That's a, that's a, that's a very nice question. Uh, it, it, um, it was, the thing that at that time was still unknown, of course, was, is, was what a lifetime of these objects would be. Mm. And that, made a calculation like that immediately not very feasible. I mean, one was immensely surprised that that a 13th magnitude star could, uh, could have that kind of a redshift and clearly was cosmological and therefore was an excessively bright object. But we didn't know how long it would last. So the total energy output, I don't think, we could work out as yet.
0: Okay, so uh, soon, it was either then or very soon, Sandage came forth with his variability measurements, the yes. 3C48. That's right. Which showed that the source was very, physically very small, smaller than a solar system. That's right. So what are you thinking at that point when that
1: uh, comes to the fore? It's very strange. Uh, couldn't understand it. Uh, but, you know, once you have a redshift like that, there's nothing you can do about nothing it. Nothing right. you do, You're married to the redshift, and uh, so, so that, that, that did not play a major role.
0: You were so confident that it was up to other people to solve this problem. Yes. <laughs> right.
1: Although I must admit that um, I think I made certain calculations, I must admit that that there was an efficiency. I did some calculation that showed that it was uh, that that the conversion of mass into energy would have to be at about ze- an efficiency of zero point one.
0: Really, of course, that's the canonical number today.
1: Yeah, probably. So that's
0: remarkable that you came to that conclusion yeah. back then.
1: And. Um, and uh, the, I think that, uh, that that of nuclear energy in, in, in stars, it's more like 0.006, I believe.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So you, you realized you had an amazing...
0: Amazing object.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Output that, uh, that was astounding.
0: So leaping ahead a little bit to a few years, and here I don't have a personal knowledge of the chronology. Maybe you can help. But the, the idea gradually comes to the fore that the engine of these sources is due to these massive uh, billion solar mass objects That's right. That's at right. the centers of galaxies. That's right. There's a black hole there, and paradoxically, it's actually shining more brightly yeah. than anything else in the universe. Right. So you begin to hear talk of this. When would this be? The late 60s? Bell publishes a paper in the late 60s, I think. I think he wasn't the first.
1: Sixty-seven, I think, around sixty-seven, I think. So what? What are, you, what are
0: you thinking at that point in and, terms of models? I liked it. Did you?
1: It, it was the first. It was the first indication that we, we that it it could could be done that nature could do it.
0: So how did your views of QSO structure evolve over time? Did you more or less stick with the accreting black hole model and try to refine it in your own thinking? Or did you have excursions into wilder yeah. notions?
1: I'm of course not a the theoretician, no. <laughs> so it was not my uh, my. And I should also tell you that that uh, uh, this particular issue was taken up by so many theoretical astronomers. And once they start on something, um, I say, good, let them do it. After all, they don't observe. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but uh, it, it's uh, it's Of course, there are questions about the black hole and the black hole formation and so on.
0: Well, I'm just going to ask you that now. Yeah. What what do you think are the biggest remaining outstanding questions about black holes?
1: How they form.
0: Why is that a problem?
1: I think Martin Rees has shown that it is a very considerable problem. And that if you try to form them from the beginning of the universe as efficiently as possible, that you need a seed that is already at that time a hundred solar masses.
0: At some early time?
1: At a very early time. Mm -hmm. And from then on, if you're lucky, you can in fact get uh, things that are 10 to the ninth solar masses at the most distant quasar. Of course, that recent redshift of 7.2 doesn't help.
0: There's That's
1: even less time.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you have any theor- personal, private theories as to no, how this is no, happening? No,
1: no, but as I may have mentioned earlier, my surprise has, uh, has been always that, uh, that uh, even things in the very early universe had, uh, had metal abundances that seemed to be so high. Solar metal buns how do they get it that that takes recycling of material through stars and i i don't understand it
0: so not only were their masses large their abundances weren't primordial either yeah 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 interesting well let me conclude this little segment here with a more philosophical question and i'll start by observing that many people would say the discovery of quasars did two things for us. First of all, they were fortuitously very bright so we could see them far away. So they were our first look at the distant universe. We're using our telescopes now to look back in time and see a universe the way it actually was. Mm -hmm. It might be dim, it might appear small on the sky, but it's actually what went on then. So uh billions of years of history are suddenly opened up to the yep. human race yeah and, and and furthermore your next great contribution here is to show that the number either the number density and or the luminosity of quasars is varying a lot right they are either much more frequent and or much more luminous in the past right. right so not only are we looking at the distant universe, but we see that it is different right. from today's universe. Right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the astronomical implications of those conclusions?
1: Yeah, let me let me uh, let me perhaps also say something about the methodology mm. uh, because V over V M played an important role.
0: Ah, but we should probably pause there and explain what that is. Yes. Okay.
1: Um, if you have radio sources, and let's say you have a complete set of radio sources in the 3C catalog, and you have investigated all of them down to an optical magnitude of 18.4, like I had uh, in, uh, in the first work.
0: A complete sample.
1: A complete to magnitude 18.4 optical. So there were two selection criteria nine flux units in the radio, brighter than 18.4 optical. What do you do about that?
0: You tell me. <laughs> All right.
1: <laughs> I invented the V over VM, V VMAX max, v v method and said, okay, I take the source, I move it out in redshift, and as I do so, I carefully follow what its magnitude will be, of course getting fainter, and what its radio flux density will be. And as soon as it drops below either nine flux units or fainter than 18.4, I stop.
0: And you record that distance.
1: And that is the, and when you, so you have a distance R and RM or Z and ZM. If you put that in the in a cosmological model and you call the volume out to these two places v over v m, then it's clear that if there is no evolution in the objects, it should be a half, and it should be uniform from zero to one.
0: Did you think of that all by yourself?
1: Uh, I said that and did it. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> I think that's very clever. <laughs>
1: and uh, if you do that, if and, and I think in the first paper uh, uh, on the evolution of quasars, I think I showed that uh, it was zero point sixty seven,
0: not zero point five,
1: not zero point five, right? And it was strongly concentrated to the higher. So uh, and that showed already therefore that there had to be evolution. This was all in co-moving coordinates properly in a, mm-hmm. in, a, in a cosmological model. So, And that I consider so early as, as one that I'm really proud of. Uh, well because because it was the first indication, I think, that we had evidence strong evidence for a change in the absolute properties of the objects with
0: redshift. And therefore as a function of time. Right. So we should remind some of our listeners that the steady state theory was very much alive and debated at the time. That's right. The steady state theory predicted that the universe would look the same regardless of how far away it was. That's right. Because it should be the same at all times. Yep. And so this observation of quasars was the first to show, conclusively right. that the steady-state universe couldn't be true.
1: Cor- correct.
0: Which got you into a lot of hot water.
1: And Fred Hoyle didn't <laughs> like that at all. Right. And let's and, and, uh, see, Tommy Gold was also part of this steady-staters, and then Dennis Shama, I think. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Burbage yeah he, he was no he was not he he was he was just grouchy about the whole thing as you well know and uh and, and and he was so struck by the high by the consequences that he said these redshifts are not real right and jeff at every meeting would uh, uh say well you all are uh, talking about uh, you know uh, the but 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 you're forgetting, you make an assumption that the red shifts are cosmological. And people who didn't know Jeff would say, Who is he? <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so here's my last question in this in this segment. Uh, and returning then now to now that we've elucidated the how thrilling and how impactful these observations were. Uh, The question is, how have you felt personally to be the first human being who has opened up the distant universe to human scrutiny and furthermore showed that it's evolving?
1: Yeah. Well, it's amazing. Uh, There is this privileged position that you really occupy for a while, especially if it's not published yet. (laughs) 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 that you say, ah, I see this, and I see it clearly, it's a good method, Uh, I took both limits into account, Uh, it's solid, and I I can change the cosmology uh, parameters, but that makes uh, hardly any difference. And uh, you feel privileged to see uh, what the universe is really like, and, and, and... and happy that, that 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 you were it that that could play the role, but I always, on the other hand, feel that in astronomy, like in certain other fields, uh, that it is just that you do a few steps up, but that uh, that uh, that you know the future generations are uh, make use of a single or perhaps two steps that you made in advancing the science, but it's up to them to continue doing it, and so on.
0: Well, that's true, but history is looking back at your achievements and saying, those were pretty damn big steps. (laughs) (laughs)